Welcome to the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and Buddhist scholar Reggie Ray on Tibetan Buddhism's approach to understanding and resolving trauma. This conversation was recorded on February 26, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, please find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So we talk about the body in uh, Buddhism you know, quite a bit. And every, you know, Buddhist tradition, almost without exception, includes some reference to the body. And uh, even if you're talking about paying attention to the breath at the tip of the nose, which is the most commonly used meditation technique in Buddhism, really the breath is an aspect of the body. So, you know, Buddhism does know about the body. Uh, and uses it to some extent. The uh, Vajrayana tradition within this, uh, Vajrayana is a form of Buddhism that developed in the forests and the jungles and the mountaintops of India sometime around the third or fourth or fifth century of the common era. And it was not a, it was not well known in India at all. In fact, we have records of Chinese pilgrims who visited, you know, five, six, seven hundred, and there's no mention of Vajrayana. They didn't know anything about it. They talked about the um, 18 schools of Buddhism and the great Mahayana universities, but there's absolutely no mention of Vajrayana. But we know from historical records, um, later records, that it was, um, it was going on. So this uh, Vajrayana tradition is really, it's a different uh, approach shall we say, to spirituality. My uh, university teacher in my PhD program was Mircea Eliadi, who was uh, one of the greatest historians of religion of the um, last century. And he used to say that Vajrayana Buddhism, that Buddhism was uh, big enough to make room for this very unusual approach. But it's not, in, in a certain sense, it's really different, you know, from other uh, Buddhist approaches. In the Vajrayana, the body is the uh, is the working basis. Now, the important point here is we are talking about the physical body that we know about, the body that you know all of us are sitting here and we we feel our body and we we think we know our body somewhat. We have ideas about our body. And most of all, we have experiences of our body that we take to be reality. What happens in the Vajrayana is you are uh, very gradually, you're introduced to a very different experience of the body. As we were talking about yesterday, instead of knowing the body in the conventional way and in terms of conventional experience, 
you begin to know the body through a series of practices that enter you into it, it's possible to develop awareness in every part of your body that is not uh, awareness of me looking in, but it's actually my consciousness connecting with the consciousness of the body. According to Buddhism, the uh, ego consciousness is very limited. Neurobiology has uh, suggested that we, um, of all the experience that is known to the body and that is received by somatic awareness, the conscious ego only knows a few parts in a million. So what happens in the Vajrayana is you are introduced into practices that help you begin to tune in to the awareness of the body itself. We can look at this, um, you know, in terms of trying to make sense out of all of this, we can, we can think about neuroscience and we can think about the discoveries over the last century and a half of the uh, very different functions of what used to be called the left brain and the right brain. The left brain is the thinking mind. It uh, has the famous three L's uh, that characterize it. It's linguistic. You can think about it. You think about experience. You can give words to it. It's logical. You can analyze what you're thinking about. And it's linear. One thing builds on another. But the thing about the left brain, the thinking mind, is it cannot experience anything directly. This is why when we are cut off from our bodies, as we largely are in modern culture, uh, many, many people report that they feel completely out of touch with their own human life. And this is not some kind of vague, um, paranoid thinking. It's actually a statement of fact. The more the left brain thinking mind is isolated from the larger domain of the body, or what I call the soma, the less experience there is in the way of direct visceral feeling of being alive and, um, you know, the entire sensory realm and our emotional life and our somatic intuitions and what the body's telling us, we're completely cut off from that. And we feel arid and dry and dead. So the bright brain, on the other hand, and I know for everybody at CIIS, I'm just reviewing, um, the right brain is the, uh, it's the realm of pre-thought. It's the realm that receives experience before we think about it, before we attach labels to it. Now, it's interesting that nowadays, uh, neuroscientists don't, they don't talk about the right brain anymore. In fact, Dan Siegel says we shouldn't call it the right brain because really uh, what used to be called the right brain, which is the realm of direct, non-conceptual, naked, unprocessed, unmediated experience includes the right brain, the limbic system, 
and especially the amygdala, the place where we we have uh, immediate feelings of safety and danger. The brainstem, where we feel uh, threats to survival. The heart, all of the feelings and the sense of interconnection of the heart. The gut, uh, you know, when we say I have a gut feeling, that's very literal. Uh, the throat is another processing center. And in fact, what used to be called the right brain is not only what I just mentioned, the so-called subcortical regions, um, you know, beneath thinking, but actually all the way down to the cells themselves. The cells of our body each have their own style of awareness and their own receptivity. So Dan Siegel says, you know, basically we can talk about the left brain, but then we have to talk about the um, the brain of the body. And he doesn't even like the term brain because it uh, privileges in the wrong direction. So I call it the soma, this uh, ancient Greek term. And it means the totality of the knowingness of our body and our uh, left brain, our right brain, sorry. So the um, interesting point is, you know, it sounds all very accessible and logical, but the, you know, in our culture, the thinking mind and what the thinking mind knows and the conclusions it comes to are so highly prioritized that actually we don't, most of us really don't even know what it means to experience the soma, the subcortical naked experiential field of unbiased awareness, which the body is. We don't even know what that's like. We have no experience of it in our culture. In the uh, Vajrayana tradition, the entire emphasis is on entering into the uh, soma, entering into the body, and conducting, not only conducting the path, but conducting our life from that standpoint. So what analogies uh, can I come up with to you know, suggest what this is like? Do you know how sometimes you, you're in a situation and uh, there's a lot of things going on and you have your own ideas about it and you walk out of it thinking you know you know what's going on, say an interpersonal situation. And and then you go to sleep and you have a dream and the dream shows you what was really going on. Uh, you see the dynamic, you know, between yourself and someone else. You see what you were doing. You see what the other person was really up to. And sometimes dreams can be, you know, very heavy in terms of uh, cutting through our own mental ideas about a situation and showing us the, the, the bare facticity of it. Um, dreams that I've had in my life, and I'm sure you were all very similar, have changed the course of my life, showing me that uh, a whole side of things that I had not seen. Uh, dreams, as Arnie Mandel says, dreams are actually the voice of the body. Uh, dreams are one of the ways in which what the body knows is communicated to us. So the body is a, a very, it's a very vast and very profound resource. And it has certain 
you know, if we can say, well, you know, I know what my conscious mind knows. I have a sense of that. You know, I know what I know. I know where to get information. I know how to think about things. I know how to analyze things. I know how to come to logical conclusions. But what does what is it that uh, what's going on with the what's called the uncultivated field of awareness that is the body? You know what's going on there. Uh, for one thing, and this is you know basically Vajrayana Buddhism. So what I'm doing tonight is I want to just sort of uh, I want to share some perspectives of this very unusual tradition and how it approaches the question of non-dual awareness and healing. So one characteristic of the body is what's known as complete openness. And what that means is that although, you know, we talk all the time about boundaries, we have to have good boundaries, um, the body doesn't have any boundaries at all. Uh, we certainly know from um, biology that the body itself, you know, the skin is permeable and the body is in constant exchange on a physical level with the world around it. We know now from the discovery of mirror neurons in uh, neuro neuropsychology that the, uh, the emotional life of the body is very much connected and very much entrained and in tune with those around us. And we know from astrophysics and cosmology that the uh, body, that the information from the ends of the universe in the form of electromagnetic energy um, and probably dark energy and dark matter permeate the whole universe and the body is open to that. So what we're saying here is that the body not only doesn't have any boundaries, it's in uh, connection and in, from a certain point of view, in aware, in aware connection with the entire universe around it. It's complete openness. Everything that is going on in the universe, uh, even on, on a very subtle level, is actually known in the body and by the body. In Buddhism, this dimension of the body is called the Dharmakaya. It is that uh, depth of the uh, body of an enlightened person that uh, is infinitely open and sensitive and aware. But the Vajrayana point is, uh, this is not only the body of an enlightened person. This is the final reality of our own body. Our own body at this moment has that fundamental kind of infinite an infinitely sensitive and open awareness. The uh, purpose of Vajrayana Buddhism is to tap us into that fundamental level of our own being. When we talk about boundaries, uh, it's, it's a scary fact that the reason we set up boundaries is because of what the body has already received. If you see what I'm talking about. The body, the reason we set up a boundary is because the body, because the body is open and without boundaries, then we sense there's a problem, so we set up a boundary. But the boundary is a boundary on the conscious mind. It's not a boundary on the body. It's impossible to shut down the body. 
because of this uh, infinite field of awareness. So the first aspect of the soma is the openness. Our body is open. And when we, uh, you know, as Dan already suggested in his introduction, when through the practice of somatic meditation, we are able to touch and tap into that openness, we find that at the basis of our human personality, there is an experience that is timeless. We find a part of ourselves that is open, it's vast, it's infinite, and actually it stands outside of time. My uh, favorite book illustrating this is, uh, I mentioned Thursday, is Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight. And there she talks about uh, having had her entire ego mind, her thinking mind, her linguistic, logical, linear mind knocked out through a massive stroke. She experienced her body as being here, being present, but being everywhere and existing in a time that was outside of time, what's called the fourth moment. In Vajrayana, they talk about touching eternity. When we talk about uh, immortality in the great spiritual traditions, we're not talking about the uh, immortality of the ego, needless to say, but we are talking about discovering that who we really are and what is really fundamental in our state of being is not born and does not die. And that is eternal life because life at that level is eternal. So the other thing, and this is where the Vajrayana becomes uh, kind of interesting in relation to the other non-dual traditions. That... um, that fundamental nature, what we call the true nature in Vajrayana Buddhism, our true self, strangely enough, on the one hand, you can say it's infinite. You know, we experience it. I mean, we're talking about somatic experiences here. I, I just want to make that really clear. We're not talking about ideas. The experience of it is that, it, that, it, that the space of our basic nature is infinite and at the same time, that it has no, uh, it's, it's outside of time. Sounds very universal, sounds very generic, but it isn't. That's not how it's experienced. We experience it as the most personal, intimate experience that has ever happened in our life. And we experience it as, you know, we all have experiences, well, this is me, and this is what I do, and this is how people see me, and this is what I think about myself. You know, that is a certain kind of experience of ourselves. But this experience is different because this experience, when we touch it, we feel this is, this really is who I am. This is ultimately what it means to be me, is to be this timeless and uh, infinite uh, fundamental awareness in me, this, uh, this very, uh, very deep, what's called the groundless ground. When we touch that, there is the, that's what realization is. You know, we experience a tremendous sense of freedom, 
we experience a tremendous sense of uh, sympathy and compassion for the world, and we experience a very great joy to uh, have found this out about ourselves. That uh, fundamental field of awareness, and this is what is uh, interesting in the Vajrayana, that fundamental field of awareness uh, beholds the world in a certain way. It's very oriented to this world and these people and my life and my karmic situation, my city, my block, my apartment, my parakeet, my dirty refrigerator, my um, bad knees. It's very, 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 um, it's, it's completely grounded and completely tuned in to this life and this world. And what the Soma beholds is that this situation is a moment in the perfection of the universe that this life of mine is a completely unique, unprecedented, and absolutely immaculate expression of the deep, deepest depths of the sacredness of the universe. It's perceiving the world as perfect. And that includes, this is the great conundrum, of the of Christianity, I know, and uh, of all spiritualities, it includes all of the life and death we could ever imagine. That's all part of the deep and miraculous display of the universe. It's a uh, you know, if we just rest in the emptiness of the openness, that's not bad. But a deeper perception of non-duality is the uh, amazingly joyful, interconnected dance of all phenomena. What phenomena brings to us as spiritual practitioners is an enormous sense of appreciation and blissfulness and joy. Experience is joyful. Relative experience is joyful. Even depression, even fear, um, and no less so than happiness and uh, perception of beauty and so on. When viewed from the standpoint of the Soma's depths, everything in the universe is uh, bathed in its own perfection. So that's the uh, perceptual part of the Soma. And then the, uh, the third aspect of the Soma, and those of you who are Buddhist scholars, we're running through the uh, so-called three kayas of the Buddha here, just, just in case you're interested. Um, number one is the Dharmakaya. What I just talked about is the Sambhogakaya. Um, and if you're not a Buddhist scholar, don't worry about it. It really doesn't matter. And then the third um, thing about the Soma is that it um, provides guidelines for life. And uh, I'm trying to think of a way to explain this. Uh, some of you may be aware of the focusing movement uh, started by Eugene Genlin in the 60s at Chicago. I was at Chicago uh, as a student when he was there teaching this focusing movement. Did anybody know about that? Have you studied it at all? Yeah. 
he um, he discovered, and the fascinating thing about Eugene Jenlin is he got it from Buddhism. So that's really interesting. A lot of people don't know that. He got it from Heidegger, and Heidegger got it from Buddhism. So we have this interesting circle is complete. But anyway, Jenlin said, if you, um, if you sit, and he, he wasn't a Buddhist, but he's working on this uh, one aspect of the body, and you, you put your awareness within your body, and you feel the weather there. Like, what's the weather in my body right now? What is the general cultural environment of my body? In whatever language you want to use, there's a felt sense. It has nothing to do with thinking going on in your body. And then you, um, you bring before your body a problem. Your body will tell you, the body shows you. And the example is uh, somebody's trying to figure out if they should move, is it to Oakland? I think it might be to Oakland. You know, should I stay in Boulder? This is just like I'm making up. Should I stay in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, where we live? Or um, should I move to Oakland? And the thinking mind is going to, you know, try to like add up the pluses and minuses. And the thinking mind might go, are you crazy? Like Boulder. I mean, it's like number one city in the world. What's the problem? You know, get a life. But if you ask your body, you bring up boulder, and your body goes, mmm. And you bring up Oakland, and you see in Oakland possibilities opening for you. There's a kind of feeling of light and life and openness and challenge and risk. And it's all somatic. You know, there's no thinking going on. So that's an example of how the... Uh, you know, we're talking now about the enlightened uh, status of the soma. The soma is enlightened. If you want to think of it, about it this way, the thinking mind, when it takes over, we have huge suffering because the thinking mind doesn't isn't really in touch with what's going on. But the body is. And when the thinking mind is tuned into the body, then we have a, a very happy situation. And, you know, frankly, in Buddhism, that's what's called realization. When the openness of the body, when the experience of natural perfection, uh, you know, is going on and we're tapped into that, and when we learn how to take the body as a guide, that's what enlightenment is in Buddhism. Now, you might say, um, you know, uh, I thought enlightenment was like something else. I mean, what I'm talking about here is about this life. It's a way of being in this life, but a different way from the uh, paranoia and the greediness and the arrogance and the aggression and the bad feeling and the self-hatred. You know, all of these mental patterns that we get into, um, I thought enlightenment was like getting, getting rid of all of that stuff and, you know, getting out into some other space. The Vajrayana is about realizing that when you're in that other space, which we would call traumatized space, you're checked out at that point. And what we're trying to do is rather than get out of it, we're trying to get into life, get back into life and into what the Soma knows. So what happens in the Vajrayana there, um, you know, the Vajrayana, um, I can't speak for other forms of spirituality, but uh, for this tradition, the, uh, we're not really talking about a religion here at all. 
we're not even talking about Tibetan Buddhism. We're not talking about India. We're not talking about uh, some cultural tradition. We're not talking about some uh, particular uh, interpretation of reality at all. And this is a, a very, very um, offensive, I think, to many people in the modern world who are really looking for a religion. They want answers. They want a form of spirituality that has some kind of status. What we're talking about here is how to live our lives, how to be human, how to experience the openness that within us we feel is possible, we can't get to it, how to get over judging and criticizing everything in our life to the point where we can't enjoy anything and our relationships are like completely twisted. You know, this deep desire to get over it and the deep desire to live in a way that is free and open and spontaneous. And that's really the, uh, that's what the Soma offers. So in the Vajrayana, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, they have a series of practices that help you tune into the awakening that is already present, the freedom that's already present, the what's called pure perception that's already present, and the uh, fundamental uh, sense of how to live one's life that is not based on agenda. It's based on the soma. It's based on somatic feeling. So what does this, um, all of this have to do with trauma? And uh, pretty soon we're going to practice. And even if I'm not finished what I'm going to say, I'm just going to turn the switch and we'll practice. But I do have one more thing. What does this have to do with working with trauma, all of this? Um, The, uh, this tradition, uh, it's, uh, those of you who know Mahayana Buddhism will, will recognize this, uh, you know, the Buddhism of compassion, uh, of which Vajrayana is a more uh, yogic, more somatic uh, development, says that there are two, uh, two veils that get between us and the kind of life we're talking about, the kind of life that we long for. The first veil is what's called the veil of conflicting emotions. It's Kleshavarana in Sanskrit. And what it means is, it means that, you know, we are so upset. More and more people now are upset in the world, and we're all upset. I'm upset. Everybody's upset. And we have all these, like, emotional upheavals, all these neurotic meltdowns, um, all these freakouts, and they come up in, you know, different personalities. They come up in, you know, a sudden wave of self-loathing or a sudden upsurge of hatred and aggression. Or we suddenly feel paralyzed by paranoia. Or we feel incredibly needy, like emotionally we're starving to death. Or we're suffocating. And these, um, these emotions are triggered by different situations and they come up. And, and as you know, they really, they really, uh, particularly, you know, for a person who gets angry a lot, it really gets in the way of our life. It doesn't mean we're angry all the time. Uh, in fact, you could get angry once a month, but if it's at the wrong person, for example, your spouse or your boss or your child, it can be very, very, very damaging. So uh, we have this kind of stuff going all the time. And uh, 
it's kind of our, um, it's a thing we don't really talk about. We don't really talk about it. And, you know, with our friends and in our culture, it's this thing we try to keep control of. And, you know, we don't want people to know really what it's actually like for us. We don't want people to know what actually goes on between, you know, in our families. It's too embarrassing. It's humiliating, actually, that we're so, so uh, you know, in a way under, con- under the control of these, you know, disruptive, wild emotions that come up, or maybe not wild, but just pernicious. And the way that first, it's called the first veil, that gets between us and the life we're longing for, the way we work with it is the practice of mindfulness. We have uh, heard a very great deal in our culture of late about mindfulness, and um, people are making fortunes by teaching mindfulness, and people are becoming famous by teaching mindfulness. And mindfulness is not that hard to teach. You know, there's one person who's very famous who did a program, you know, for like a week, and then set himself up, and he's famous today. He's a famous mindfulness teacher. It's not that hard to teach. You know, you just sit there and pay attention to your breath. And it's very powerful in terms of calming down, of down-regulating these, uh, you know, these uh, clashes or, or what are called these conflicting emotions. It's very, very powerful. And the mindfulness practice does actually help us down-regulate. And it helps us begin to feel like we have a little bit more control. I mean, we still get upset but we have this practice we can do to bring ourselves down and bring ourselves back. It's very reassuring. It's, it's in a way, um, in the Mahayana tradition, and now we're back to you know, Buddhist history, in the Lotus Sutra, there's an example given. The practice of mindfulness is like uh, people who are on this long caravan, and they're going through the desert, and it's very dry, and they're dying of thirst, and they see an oasis up there. And they arrive at the oasis, and ah, oh, they relax, and they, you know, the camels are drinking water, and they drink water, and there's beautiful fruit in the trees, and there's grass, and and that's the practice of mindfulness. But the thing is, you can't live in the oasis forever. Uh, if you want to ar- arrive at the city of enlightenment, or in our case, uh, the city of full realization of your human life, you can't um, you can't just stay at the oasis. You have to move on. And what they're saying there is, in our language, that um, it's fine to downregulate. It's fine to have something that helps you, you know, come come back to yourself and be a little bit more peaceful, be a little bit more self-contained. But the practice of mindfulness does not address trauma and cannot address trauma. That's basically what's being said here. The um, second veil and this is the one that's really important for us here, is what's called Janyaya Avarna. And Avarna, again, means veil. And Janyaya is a future gerundive future in Sanskrit. And what it means is the, um, what there is to experience. It's a veil over what there is to experience or what we could experience, which is what I talked about, the complete openness, the natural perfection, and the impeccable guidance of the body. You know, that's what we could experience. But there's a veil over that. There's something that gets between us and that life. And that's the second veil. And the interesting thing about the second veil is that is exactly what we mean when we talk about trauma 
in our culture. It's very, very interesting. So what are the characteristics of the second veil? Number one, it's uh, the obscurations are unconscious. We don't see them. It's what called, we call it implicit memory in, in psychology. That's one of the terms for it. It's unconscious. They are emotional assumptions that we have about how things are, but they're unconscious, and we don't know their assumptions. We just think that's how it is. And there are also um, beliefs about reality that, again, are unconscious. We don't see them. For example, um, each one of us has a certain feeling. You know, you look out at the world, and you have a certain feeling about how the world is. And you look at other people, and you have a certain feeling about other people. It's a somatic sense, a feeling. And the interesting point is, if this were an objective, you know, if we were accurate in this, we would all feel the same way and believe the same thing. But the thing is, every single human being has a different reality that they experience. Some people find the world a deeply, deeply unsafe place. I mean, here's the thing, we all feel all of this, but we, we specialize. So some of us specialize in how unsafe the world is, and others of us feel that people, like in my case, my whole life, I have never trusted men. You know, and if we want to look back, my, when I was two, my father went to war, and he was gone for three years. But I thought men were basically not trustworthy. And then I also never trusted women. <laughs> you know, and if we want to go back, my mother probably had Asperger's and was simply not on deck. She was a lovely person of very deep uh, motivation to help people, but emotionally there was nobody home. And for a tiny baby, that's not very helpful. You know, you're reaching out and there's this person that is clueless about what's going on with you. Well, you know, my whole life I've assumed, until I met Caroline, which is, you know, often how it goes, I've assumed that women just were not, not there, not really, not really there, not really available, you don't really care. I mean, they've got other things going on, you know, so it's like up to me. And I've, you know, finally at this stage of life met some male friends who are really there for me. And uh, it's changed things. But up until then, I just, that was the reality I lived in. And I assumed it was that way. And others of us feel that uh, it's not safe to go out of the house. Or we feel that um, anything we try, it's, we're going to be defeated or that uh, nobody's ever really going to see us. People don't see us. And all of these, you know, you can do your own thing. I mean, it would be interesting to do a weekend, you know, where we actually, each one of us tries to write down the assumptions we have about how things are and try to make them conscious. But the, uh, the point is that all of these unconscious attitudes are not accessible to us because they're unconscious and we just assume they're there. But the problem is they get between us and our relationships, 
our creativity, and even our perception of the world is, is tied up and limited and shut down because of these, all of these attitudes we have. It's almost as if we live in a, a, a dark room and there is one window and it looks in one place and that's the world that we think is the real world, what we see right through that window in that very limited way. So mindfulness, uh, okay, so where do those come from? Well, in Vajrayana, as in trauma theory, um, these habitual patterns of perception, of experience, of thinking, and of feeling, all of, the, all of these sort of rote patterns that we've developed arise out of painful experiences that are so unbearable that we cannot deal with them. And so we turn away from them. The body knows them and they're present in the body wanting to move through, but the conscious mind has turned away and developed you know, patterns of avoidance and evasion. So we don't have to feel those feelings. And this applies to, you know, the interesting thing about the Vajrayana is it normalizes trauma. It's basically saying that, you know, you may be, we may be, I may be completely incapacitated by the, uh, the number and the extremity of the patterns I've developed. Or I may be more functional, but no one escapes. Everybody is traumatized, and actually it's part of the human condition that trauma is uh, it's endemic to human life. So the, um, in the uh, conventional Buddhism, uh, it said you can practice mindfulness, and that's really, really great but you're not going to address your trauma. You can't because it doesn't, it's not somatic enough. The only way to address trauma or the second veil is through the body. So I want to emphasize that. That's why, that's one of the reasons why in Vajrayana Buddhism, the body is so important because there is no other way to unearth these painful experiences that need to be lived through and felt except through the body. If you read uh, people like uh, Vanderkoek, I have one more minute, uh, he will tell you that coming in to the body is the only route to access the amygdala and the limbic system, which is where trauma is uh, largely stored. And until you access the emotional brain, you have no access to the traumatic experience. Any kind of meditation that is not going in through the gate of the body, it may help you, but it's not going to dismantle the fundamental patterns of traumatic response that uh, Dan was mentioning that limit our lives so severely. So in the Vajrayana, we have a whole variety of uh, yogic methods, and I want to uh, show a couple to you tonight for uh, beginning to create, number one, uh, a safe foundation in the body for working with trauma, and number two, to cultivate a sensitivity 
to the feeling of trauma that is uh, deeply rooted in the soma and isn't going to be thrown off by what we find and what we feel. So, very good. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.